0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tablina Charkleboarding and I'm Sarah Dowdy. Ned Kelly's now identified remains has us all excited about Bush Rangers again. And that's mostly because our listeners are so fired up about it. When the news of his remains being identified came out, as we mentioned in the first part to this podcast, we got emails from all over the world. Our
0: inboxes exploded with
1: Ned Kelly subject lines. Indeed. So last time we started out by talking about Ned's remains being found and the news about that, but we also talked about guys who weren't Ned the earliest bushrangers in Australia who laid the foundation for later gangs like the Kelly Gang. And these men were mostly convict bolters, which means they were transported felons who escaped prison or the settlements and turned to a life of crime. But in 1853, the British Parliament passed the Penal Servitude Act, which ended most transportation sentences. And after that, the typical bushranger went from being a foreign-born convict to being a native-born Australian,
0: complete with a thorough, knowledge of the land. And that's pretty important. But another thing that's important is to to figure out the motivation for this new generation of bushrangers, since they weren't just already convicted criminals. There were really a few things at play, and the first one was gold. So the discovery of gold in Australia, specifically in Victoria and New South Wales, was a really big motivator of bushrangers in the 1850s. It gave them access to great wealth that they could convert to cash really pretty easily. And it helped that the gold fields were easy to bail up. Essentially, they were isolated and the police were often neglecting their duties. Many were jumping ship to join the gold rush themselves. And because gold had to be shipped across these lonesome, long stretches of territory, they were really the perfect target for ambushes. But there was another factor at play, too, besides just gold, which seems pretty obvious. Yeah, it was land. So while the Aborigines had
1: probably one of the most peaceful attitudes toward land holding that you can imagine, things changed dramatically when the first European settlers arrived, and by the time the period we're discussing rolled around, a real beef had developed between the two subgroups of white Australians who were rural, and that was the rich squatters on one side and poor selectors on the other. So just a little background on that. So initially, squatters in Australian history were just like squatters anywhere else. They were illegal occupiers of land, in this case grazing land outside of the legitimate crown settlements. But by by the 1840s it was clear that squatters were developing the country's wool industry and becoming a political force of their own they were allowed leases at that point and many grew very very rich
0: but we end up with an influx of new immigrants and miners who are arriving every day and finally the colonies started to pass selection acts so that these newer arrivals could buy some land themselves at auction. And they were, of course, competing against the powerful squatters. So it's really no surprise that these two groups of people didn't much care for each other. They had conflicting interests. So our first bushranger, though, now that we've established the motives for this later generation, we're going to start with a bushranger who really epitomized the later generation, even though he was a compatriot of Frank Gardner, who was the last ranger we included on our earlier list.
1: Yeah, his name was Brave Ben Hall, or just Ben Hall, but they call him Brave Ben Hall. And he knew the countryside really well. He knew horses, and he was Australian-born. He was born May 9th, 1837, in New South Wales, and he was the son of two ex-convicts. His father actually met his mother
0: when she was at the female convict factory. Well, and I like starting with him, too, because he is really, truly the second generation here, the son of convicts. How perfect. Exactly. And he grew up
1: working with horses and cattle while his father father ran a successful farm and worked as an overseer. And Ben, the interesting thing about him, though, is even though he was the child of two convicts, he seemed initially on track for this kind of hardworking agricultural life, the same life that his parents were leading at the time, basically. Or that they were at least cultivating. Right. He took on a lease on land in Sandy Creek, and he married his neighbor, Bridget Walsh, on Leap Day in 1856 in a Catholic ceremony. But then, just like a Western movie, poor treatment in the hands of the law is what made him abandon this peaceful
0: life. Or at least that's what we think. Evidence about this part of his life is a little bit sketchy, but... There are two wrongful arrests, and the first occurs April 1862 on the orders of Sir Frederick Pottinger, and the charges were armed robbery and being an accomplice to none other than bushranger Frank Gardner, not a guy who you want to be associated with if you're on the right side of the law. So Ben Hall spent several weeks in jail, but there was really no evidence, and he was let go. Then comes another arrest, this time for a gold robbery. And again, there was no evidence. It didn't even go to trial. And uh, he comes back home and finds that his house has been burned down. And perhaps Pottinger did it. His stock is dead from thirst. And because of legal expenses, he has to give up his lease. So he's suddenly a ruined man. Yeah, and to make matters
1: worse, at some point in the middle of all this trouble, his wife left with their infant son, maybe for a former policeman. So 22-year-old Hall at this point teams up with Frank Gardner for real and starts robbing the countryside. Their exploits were really in-your-face type tactics. They'd steal racehorses. In 1863, they bailed up the entire town of Canoundra, putting everybody up in a local hotel and treating them to a three-day feast and bender. The party was only cut short because they got word that the river was rising and they'd be trapped if they'd stay longer.
0: And uh, one thing to note, too, about Ben Hall, even though they were really well-armed and really well-organized, Hall would stop members of his own gang from committing acts of violent revenge or cruelty if he could. He'd prefer a ransom over death, even though by Right. 1864, a gang member had shot a sergeant, and by 1865, another member shot a constable. It's easy to see how violence would pretty quickly become the norm for for these bushrangers. But the exploits of the gang and the ineptitude of the police force eventually caught higher-ups' attention, as, as you would expect them to. His old enemy, Hall's old enemy, Frederick Pottinger, was even recalled to Sydney in 1865 for neglecting his duty. He had been out riding in some races, and he didn't notice that Hall's gang was also right there. You'd think he would recognize him. Yeah, you'd think so. Maybe he was like wearing a different
1: outfit a different or something, hat. a disguise perhaps. <laughs> some glasses. I don't know. But that same year, things changed a little bit. The government put out a new law, the Felon's Apprehension Act. So in addition to the gold and the land disputes we discussed, this is really the third piece of the puzzle for understanding later generations of bushrangers. Under the new rules, individuals could be proclaimed as outlaws and then shot without warning. So this was basically martial law. And anyone harboring a felon could be considered a felon as well. Pretty bad news for the bushrangers with Robin Hood-type reputations. Yeah,
0: because as we've discussed in the Ned Kelly episode and in our earlier bushrangers episode— these people really were indulged by townspeople sometimes. I mean depending on on how good or bad they were. I mean, I have to imagine some of it was fear. You don't want to insult the bushranger, but these three-day benders, the three-day feast, that sort of thing, townspeople like them to a certain extent. So with this new law and a 1,000 pound reward on his head, Hall decided that he was going to call it quits, but he was betrayed by a friend and troopers showed up at his hiding place may 5th 1865 shot him in the back then shot him 30 more times and that was pretty much the end of the notorious hall gang the last two members of his gang were also shot or executed within the next few months but he did get some valid immortality though courtesy of hall's brother-in-law and i'm gonna force the rhymes here to make this work Dargan, he was chosen to shoot the outlaw dead. The troopers then fired madly, filled him full of lead. They rolled him in a blanket and strapped him to his prod and led him through the streets of Forbes to show the prize they had. Had, But, you know, we're going to make it work. (laughs) So that was the end of Ben Hall. But we have another bushranger who's not such a cheery-sounding fellow. No, he's not quite as likable. So,
1: first, we should say that the notoriety of Ben Hall's gang and the ineptitude of the police are often credited as the reason behind the Felon's Apprehension Act of 1865. But not all of the bushrangers of the 1860s were these Robin Hood-type characters hosting three-day parties. One, in particular, Mad Dan Morgan, was known for meaningless murders, cruelty, and violence. Mad Dan, as he was called, was born John Fuller in New South Wales in 1830, and he was the illegitimate child of Mary Owen and George Fuller. And unlike Ben Hall, Dan Morgan, he didn't start out on the straight and narrow. Pretty much as early as his teens, he was suspected of stealing stock. But his actual arrest record began in 1854, when he was sentenced to 12 years of hard labor for a highway robbery in Victoria. He always claimed he was innocent of this original crime, though. That's the interesting it was point. That's
0: what made him a bitter man. So... After six years, he was released on a ticket of leave for good behavior and didn't report back. He was on the lam. And from that point, he became known as Down the River Jack. And he started work as a horse breaker and a station hand. So maybe kind of getting into legitimate work, except that he got into bushrangering pretty fast when he stole the prize horse of the family he worked for. And one member of that family, Evan Evans, along with another squatter, tracked Jack back to his camp and badly hurt him, but he did manage to escape. And from then on, he changed his name yet again and became known as Daniel Morgan, Billy the Native. And this is when he really gets into serious bushrangering. He was tied to the bailing up of a police magistrate and to robberies across Northeast Victoria. He even gets a 200 pound reward put on his head dead or alive. And by the next year in 1864
1: he drove up the price on his head considerably by shooting the overseer John McLean and just a few days later a police sergeant too. So now there's a 1000 pound reward on his head and by September another sergeant was killed and Morgan claimed responsibility for that too. So he just kept it just kept snowballing. Morgan was quite different from some of the other rangers we've discussed. He usually worked alone for example or if he had accomplices they'd change from job to job. So he didn't have one crew or gang that he worked with the entire time. He'd sometimes be remarkably cruel, too. He would force groups of Chinese workers to sing and dance before shooting one in the arm. He also forced the wife of a homesteader against a fire until her skirt caught fire. And after bailing up coaches, he'd stampede the horses and once tied squatter Isaac Vincent to a fence
0: and then set fire to a nearby shed. So not a very nice guy. Very bad. But he really, really hated squatters. And it's good that we gave that explanation. So you know what squatters are and you're not just like, what do you have against Squatters, illegal landholders, but he hated those who had bad reputations as employers especially. And during raids he'd pull these stunts that kind of sound like Robin Hood but kind of bad too. Like Robin Hood with a dark twist. In one case he made one squatter write more than four hundred pounds worth of checks to his employees while he was bailing him up. And during another he made the employer give food and drink to all of his employees. And his temper was really unpredictable too. It could shift on a dime, turning from courtly, that's how you'll often see it described and considerate, to violent and thus his name Mad Dan, sometimes Mad Dog. And it's this element of his personality, that unpredictable temper, plus his five foot ten frame, his dark beard and this very hooked bird like nose that made people seriously afraid of him and he worked on that fear he would kill informants without question i mean that's probably part of why he part of the reason why he worked alone and switched up his partners so frequently but he he was a scary guy
1: Eventually, though, his reputation did catch up with him. In the early months of 1865, Morgan pulled six major robberies before the passing of the Felon's Apprehension Act. And the day that it did pass, April 8th, 1865, he committed his last crime. I mean, what timing, right? Exactly. He bailed up a homestead in northeast Victoria. Pretty standard stuff for Morgan, right? But what he didn't know was that the co-owner of the station, a man named George Rutherford, lived really nearby. And a nurse at the station, Alice Keenan, managed to get word to Rutherford about what was going on, and he rounded up a posse of workers, local men, and police to wait for Morgan's appearance in the morning. So when Morgan emerged in the morning to steal a horse, he was shot in the back, and he died by that afternoon. But they didn't just bury him. No, they didn't. They cut his beard... Skin and all off of his face and sent his severed head to a Melbourne anatomy professor.
0: Yeah, the beard thing is usually described as being flayed off his face. Which I think is so so horrible. What a what a gross souvenir. But um kind of a a grisly end for Dan Morgan. Well definitely a grisly end. But These Bushrangers have obviously continued to capture the imagination of Australians and really people around the world. And we talked a little bit about Ned Kelly movies and spinoffs and things, but Fortunately, there's spinoffs regarding other Bushrangers, too. It's not all about Ned, as I hope we've proved with this podcast series.
1: Yeah, just an example of a few of the films that are out there about other Bushrangers. There was a 1976 film called Mad Dog Morgan, starring Dennis Hopper. He sounds like a really good Mad Dog Morgan. Yeah, definitely. 1953, there was another movie called Captain Thunderbolt, made by Cecil Holmes. And there are several movie adaptations of the novel Robbery Under Arms by Rolf Boulder And those feature Bushranger Captain Starlight, whose real name, I believe, was Harry Redford and finally there's a movie called Ben Hall Notorious Bushranger which was made in 1911 and there were also uh Ben Hall TV shows there was a series i think on Ben Hall in 1975 which was a collaboration between the BBC and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation so those are just a few of the options that are out there if you want to see some other bushranger movies but there are so many and i would invite all our listeners to send us some recommendations because everyone was so good about sending us Ned Kelly movie recommendations. I yeah, mean,
0: We heard all about the Heath Ledger Ned Kelly movie. The 2003 movie one. And the Mick Jagger one. Mm-hmm,
1: which everyone <laughs> says you shouldn't see because it's so terrible. Except
0: a few people who said well, you should just see it because I mean... I mean, because it's got Nick Jagger, Jagger in it. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so definitely send us your favorites, um, or your least favorites just so we know what to avoid <laughs> if we want to. And any other suggestions for Australia related topics? We've done a lot of Australian history recently, so we might yeah. take a little break, but we're always looking for, Australia-related topics to research. It's been fun. Yeah, it has. So you can email all those suggestions to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or if you want to just get to know us a little better over social media, talk to us about whatever's on your mind, history-wise or otherwise, we are on Twitter at Mystic History or on Facebook. We will see you there.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.